0: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests to be able to partake in personal conversation about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. Peter Hayes is probably best known as a world casting champion and as a highly regarded casting instructor. A longtime guide and lodge owner, he is fully immersed in the industry, and he has few qualms about speaking his truth when asked to. I met up with Peter in Tasmania for a casual sit-down. I had few expectations about what he might disclose to me, but I left with a mind full of philosophy, heartfelt discussion, and a better glimpse into the life of Mr. Hayes.
1: I started off as a fly fishing guide 21 years ago after I left engineering, mechanical engineering, mechanical design engineering actually. And I had a bit of a life change when a marriage didn't work and I came back to my birthplace, Tasmania, and started a guiding business. So after three years of uh, summertime guiding business where I would in winter go back and do contract engineering, um, a mate of mine said, Why don't you create your own job in winter instead of do contract? Engineering work. So I thought it would be sensible to vertically integrate and do a bit of casting instruction. So, uh, way back then, maybe 94 or 95 or something, um, I started doing casting schools. Oh. So, the summertime guiding is very busy with 95% repeat business, and then in winter, the casting schools have turned into You know, a big deal. And I can remember the very first one, actually. The first one, a mate of mine who's got a fishing newspaper, best fishing newspaper in the world, has fishingandboatingnews.com, Mike Stevens said, "Um, why don't you do your casting classes and I'll advertise your first cast free of charge. So he spent two magazines, two months' worth of effort, advertising Peter Hayes, Learn to Fly Fish, and Improve Your Casting, Beginners and Intermediate Casting Class.
2: And how old were you at this time? And it time? was
1: 50 bucks for the day. I was uh, 32.
2: So you, do you like think 34. you were a pretty competent caster at that point?
1: Well, I was a good caster because since I was 13, I'd cast in Australian championships and world championships. So okay. I'd been the Australian champion at fly casting for 10 years and I'd won two silver medals at world championships at fishing, one in Toronto and one in um, California.
2: Okay, so casting was not new to you at this point.
1: No, I'd I'd done it for, uh, I'd I'd cast for um, 15 years or so, 20 years. So I knew how to cast and uh, and I was the newest hotshot guide in Tasmania. So Mike had advertised these casting courses freely for me and he'd done a great job on the radio and in the newspaper and his magazine and I'd said 50 bucks for the lesson for the day and i was devastated april because only two people booked in and i thought well that's not going to work a hundred bucks after all this advertising if i had to pay for it we'd be going out backwards and i went along and i'm sort of made up the course content as i went with these two guys we had a great day and i was just devastated i came home to my uh, wife at the time and i said wow i'm just going to have to go back to engineering again over winter But that night, six people rang and said, my mate said that it was the best casting course he's ever done. He learned so much from you. When's your next class? And I had the sense at the time to uh, think quickly on my feet and say, look, I'm sorry, next Saturday's class is fully booked. Oh, you bugger. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I've got to set another date. So the next class actually had nine people in it. Awesome. And that nine t- turned into 29, and that turned into 109.
2: So viral marketing was your friend for sure yeah, it
1: was. So uh, word of mouth. And um, you know, I'm a great believer in doing a good job because then it comes back to you. If you do a great job, people will seek you out. It doesn't matter what you do. So now, uh, last, uh, last winter, I cast in North America. I did casting classes in Vancouver. I did casting classes in Japan. I did casting in Malaysia and Indonesia and in South Africa. I did five weeks teaching casting in South Africa, as well as my regular courses in Canberra, Sydney and Melbourne and, of course, here at the Lodge in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. So the casting side of my business is perhaps um, more important to me and I'm I'm better known than the guided fishing part of my business. And it's probably what I like best too. I like teaching. I'm, I'm passionate about teaching.
2: So where did you go from there? You never went back to your job back then.
1: No, that uh, that year I stopped moving back to Melbourne for winter, right. and I continued the casting program, and um, and then I, I really put my heart and soul into developing a casting program supported by notes and and memory jogger questions and practice drills afterwards, and and then I introduced some personal trainer type workshops as well. Uh, then I got involved with the Triple F and became one of their board of governors and a master casting instructor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a big deal now.
2: Who was the big hotshot instructor at the time when you first entered? Oh, there
1: was no one. So there was no one in Australia anyway.
2: So not just Tasmania, but in Australia in general. In
1: Australia, there's no one. Right. And, um, and I'm, I'm lucky, really, in that I had that 20 years experience at casting competitions because I, I did my 10,000-hour rule. I probably did 10,000 hours work at a very high level, like world standard level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I did that by the time I was 18 or 19.
2: Well, let's back you up a bit. So you were, you were born in Tasmania? Mm,
1: okay. Um, I was born in Tasmania, and I moved to Melbourne with my parents and my younger brother, Michael, And as a 13-year-old. And then the wheels fell off our family situation when my parents separated and divorced in a really bitter and twisted manner
2: and how old are you then
1: i was 13 okay so okay. i went overnight i was living in uh in a suburban melbourne and i'd come from rural tasmania so that was a big change for a kid probably mm-hmm. and um my father left the family unit in a very bitter and twisted manner so i went overnight from not having any father to finding within walking distance of my house in inner in a suburban melbourne a fly casting club and a fly casting pool. And I lost one father, but I gained 50 fathers.
2: Oh, how cool. From the
1: red tag fly fishing club. What so, prompted
2: you to go to that pond? To so, the
1: well, um, the, uh, the, the the fly casting club was in a park. And as I say, 50 old men took me under their wing. One old guy gave me a rod and someone else gave me a line and yeah. another guy put me on a tram and went and bought me a reel from Frank O'Reilly's sports store. And then I had the gear and I didn't have a dad and I had all these old blokes to hang out with every Saturday and Sunday and they taught me to cast at targets. So I'd go down every night after school. Luckily, I was good at homework. I'd finish my homework, I'd get on my bike and I'd go down, I'd set all the targets out and I'd cast at targets, competition casting. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky that the best club was down the road from my house. I was also very lucky in that There was one guy there, Jack Joyner, who had never had any children. And so he took me under his wing and, uh, you know, he became my mentor at casting. Now, I was lucky too in that Jack Joyner was a world champion caster in his own right. And when John Tarantino, famous American caster, was out in Australia um, many, many years before, I think perhaps in 1972... Jack Joyner actually beat the best in the world, John Tarantino. So Joyner was a really good caster. So I didn't just have any mentor, I had the best mentor in Australia for a young boy.
2: Is he still alive? No,
1: he died sadly. And um, he died a week after I came back from. (sighs) Sad about it. He died a week after I came back from the first World Championship I ever went to. And, uh, and I'd won a silver medal.
2: Did he ever, did he know that you won?
1: Yeah, he did. <clears throat> mm. So that was, um, that was cool. Um, anyway, I was lucky to have Jack as my mentor. I was lucky to be good at homework so I could practice a lot. I was at an age where I didn't have anything else to do but to practice. And a hand-eye sport really clicked with me. So I was very lucky to be selected in... Um, to win an Australian championship by Thomas 19, and I was selected in the world team for Australia to represent Australia at the world championships. Wow. And I went to Santa Clara and I won a silver medal in single handed fly distance where I threw 64 and a half metres. So that was a long cast, it was probably 8 or 10% sentence. above my best effort. So if you're going to get lucky and make your best cast ever, you're better off doing it in a world championship <laughs> yeah i worked away it, it was enough to sort of feed the desire in me to to do better i finished overall out of the 11 events which are some plug casting events as well as fly casting events i finished overall in seventh place so i was ranked seventh in the world and i had a silver medal so that was pretty cool for a 19 year old kid you know,
2: yeah i think i'm in a city melbourne
1: without a dad so i worked really hard for two years and i went to a world championships in toronto and again i finished seventh overall and i won another silver medal in the fisherman's accuracy in distance where i threw 74.47 meters so that that is a long way
2: i mean if you think three feet per
1: meter yeah 74.47 Two hundred
0: forty-five feet. Wow!
1: Sorry, that was a long time ago. With um, what?
2: Were you using a shooting head?
1: Yeah, they're all shooting heads. Yeah, and um, you know they're all the thirty-eight gram lines, so it's like a sixteen-weight shooting head. Or something. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I used to do. Oh, and the two-handed, the two-handed salmon event, I came fifth in the world championships. So I threw ninety-one point something meters way back then. This
2: would be overhead casting.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I did that flat out, and that put me in a position really to get to know a lot of people in the fishing industry Mm -hmm. and I was recognized in Australia as one of the better casters and I married a lawyer and I was an engineer and I was living happily ever after in Melbourne until I was 32 okay and then when I was 32 things changed in my life a lot of things changed that year and actually if you'd sat me down over a beer and said, Peter, I've just looked into my crystal ball and I can predict your next, you know, 18 months. In the next 18 months, from when I was uh, 32, if you'd said your marriage of, to Libya for 11 years is going to terminate and you're going to be single and you're going to go and live in India for three months to look after your dying sister-in-law, who you love dearly, she's dying of cancer in India, and you, you're going to move, you're going to quit your job of seven years with Sid really conservative company where you've been for seven years, you're going to live in India and look after this lady for three months, and then you're going to come back and you're going to sell your house and move to Tasmania and take on a job as a fishing guide, and, and, and your brother Michael's going to die of a heart attack at 30, um, all in the space of one year, I would have said you've bloody been drinking something or smoking something, you know. But that's what happened. When I was 32, that all happened. So I ended up in Tasmania um, without a relationship, with a new business. So I came to Tasmania to start the guiding business. And I didn't have much else to do, so I threw my heart and soul into running what I hoped to become, you know, one of the best guiding businesses and casting instruction schools on the planet.
2: Were you terrified?
1: Uh yeah, or were you because you don't know and I I don't I'm sure I don't have to tell you this. You don't know where your next dollars coming from,
2: yeah, especially the first it's, few years.
1: It's a short season. And then winter's a long time and um, the costs are high. In Tasmania, we have to have two or three different boat sizes. You know, we've got drift boats and we've got big sport fishing boats. We have to have flash big four-wheel drives. Um, you know, it costs a lot to run this business. And at the end of the day, as much as we charge people, I still worry about paying the MasterCard bill each month. Right. But I've been, this is my 21st year of business and um, I've had such a rich life as a fly fishing guide and um i'm glad i'm on didn't stay an engineer
2: yeah well yeah. peter you could have settled anywhere though why did you choose to settle in tasmania well, it's where
1: i was born so you know this lodge is within 100 kilometers of where i was actually born and there is something nice about coming back to your birthplace this lodge is in the geographic position of this lodge is the best spot for trout fishing in australia brown trout trout fishing in australia brown or rainbow trout Uh, because we're on brumbies creek here which is a tailwater fishery from the great lake Mm -hmm. so even in drought conditions water has to go past my door here it's crystal clear freezing cold water from up in the highlands a thousand meters above Um, we're in the heart of the river fishing here as you can see from all the maps on the walls and we're 40 minutes from the iconic highland lakes fishery and in tasmania uh, or in australian fly fishing Tasmanians never ever save their money and go on a fly fishing holiday to Victoria or to New South Wales or Why to Queensland because the fishing's substandard. But the Victorians and the New South Welshmen always save their money to go on a fly fishing holiday to Tasmania. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen the other way around. That's because the fishing's better here.
2: What are your thoughts about Tasmanian trout size? Because on your fridge out there, the fish are huge. But then you speak to people and they go, oh, the fish aren't that big in Tasmania.
1: Well, it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and I love that expression, it depends. What's big to one person is not big to another person. And um, sometimes, uh, one of the women at, the, at this weekend we've just had, the Girls Gone Fly Fishing weekend, caught a five-inch redfin. And the truth of it is, the five-inch redfin is harder to catch than the stocked eight-pound rainbow trout. So it's more worthy a capture than the big rainbow trout. So mm-hmm. size to me doesn't really matter. But of course you don't see small fish on the front of fishing magazines, and you're not going to see small fish on my fridge. <laughs> um, the biggest fish on the fridge is one a client caught three years ago in the Western Lakes. That's a 13 pound brown trout. It's huge. And it but it's the biggest fish that any kind of mine's caught for 21 years. Mm-hmm. And you just I don't think you can catch a 13-pound brown trout on a dry fly in two feet of water, crystal clear water, in a wilderness environment anywhere in the world. Um, So they're the fish fish I'm going to put on the fridge, of course. Um, Look, the average lake fish in Tasmania might be 2.5 pounds, and there's lots of them. Lakes like Arthur's Lake, you know, Jim Allen calls, the brown trout factory of the world. And I'd agree with that. There's a lot of fish in that lake. You see them when there's an ant fall mm-hmm. and every fish is feeding on ants and you don't know which one to cast to, April. So there's a lot of trout and I don't mind catching two and a half pounders or my clients certainly don't mind catching two and a half pounders.
2: How do you appeal to people who are not from Australia?
1: Um,
2: How do you sell to them?
1: I don't want to sell to them, April. Why not? Um, I've built this business based on the fact that I think my market, my, my demographic, is professionals, uh, probably retired, certainly small business owners, you know, more wealthy, more affluent people from Melbourne and Sydney, where it's a 45-minute airfare from Melbourne and 50 bucks and they can be here. So my clients come two or three times a year from Melbourne and Sydney their 95 nearly 95 percent repeat business and when they go home they tell their mates that they've had a great time and i get another client from it okay. if i've got uh, a north american as an example <laughs> he comes once has a great time and goes home and tells his mates and i don't get another job out of it right. and he doesn't come back although we do have some i must say we do have some some north american clients that have been for 14 years but that's another story they don't come back because then off to Argentina next time, or next time they're going to Russia, or next yeah. time they're going to Scotland, or next the time tour. You know, they're lodge jumpers. Yeah, I don't want them. So,
2: so your marketing really hasn't changed in twenty-one years. No,
1: I got lucky in that I identified very early on what my target audience is. I stuck to the plot despite um, you know Tourism Tasmania's best efforts to divert me to the North American market and the Denver tackle show and so on, mm-hmm. and um, and I was really pleased. A few years ago when we had the GFC um, and mates of mine who are guides in New Zealand went broke, went out of business because they're so reliant on, upon the North American market, um, my, my income actually went up in the GFC. I had to pay too much tax that year um, because my clients, it, it, the GFC doesn't affect them at all.
2: Right. Mm. What happens when they all start to get older and they die off?
1: Yeah, there's always always people wanting a space wanting the third week in october you know the fourth week in december so there's always someone and and i don't know how many guiding weeks are there if you said it's a five month season there's 20 weeks yeah five fours 20 20 weeks two clients a week although a lot of my work is single people but you know i'm looking for 40 people a year
2: do you have guides who work for you
1: yeah there's uh just one these days and and david hemmings has guided for 10 years and um, he's only got availability of two or three days a week. So. Do
2: you want to expand? No. Have you had many more guides before? Why would I want to expand? Why wouldn't you?
1: Because uh, I like the intimacy of the, how it works now. My clients become my best friend. I, beca- I become their best friend.
2: Are you in this business primarily? Why do you think you're in the business?
1: Uh, I'm in the business because it's my passion. It has been since I was 13 years old. And a mate of mine, a mate of mine, when in the first couple of years where I guided, um, I could see that you can't make any money out of guiding. You know, you just couldn't do it long term and have a family and put kids through school um, and pay a mortgage. And so those first couple of years, I was going backwards and forwards to Melbourne doing contract engineering. And the contract engineering um, income was subsidising the lack of guiding income in the first few years. Mm -hmm. And I was in a quandary about what to do so after year three, it was, I was having a beer with a mate in a pub in Launceston one night, and he could see I was, I was, you know, distraught about what to do and what was going to be best for my family. And he said, you know, Peter, he said, if the truth's told, there's probably 10,000 engineers in Australia, and you're probably one of the worst ones.
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And there might be only 50 fishing guides in Australia and you might even be the best one in the world. Right. you are alone, Australia. So he said, I think you have to just do follow your passion and do what you're best at in life. And I reckon that was really wise.
2: Yeah, that's very uh, insightful.
1: Yeah. So I thought about that and I thought, that's right. And that was the year I started the casting classes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and I'd like to think now I'm well respected all over the world for my um, guided Fishing, yeah. my casting instruction, Definitely. and um, and and you know anything to do with fly fishing. I've won medals in casting. I've won medals in fishing. I've got a strong guided fishing business, strong international casting school business, and I don't think I can do very much more. Mm-hmm. So ten years ago, I leased the uh, I leased this facility, mm-hmm. and dug a casting pool, and have rehabilitated a stream. So we've got some private fishing on site, and now we've got the whole box and dice here on this site and we've got 20 beds and a big casting pool and so on so I can't, you, I can't do any more I don't think was that
2: the right decision for you?
1: yeah well, it has been but it's hard work it's really hard work look at this girl's gone fly fishing weekend there's 27 ladies here learning to fly fish and it just hasn't stopped for three days yeah it's
2: been non-stop but it's look at the world
1: result world. and I'm you know I don't want to run away from that for one minute I'd, ra- I'd rather man up and and just work harder because look at the result like fantastic
2: how old are you now
1: i'm uh, 53 now
2: i'm going to be total i'm going to ask you a yeah, sure. brutal question how long do you want to guide for
1: well that's a good question i've got a, a guiding mate bill beck and becky i reckon would be 74 and he still guides um because spend, he
2: wants to or yeah. because he's financially no, obligated. because he
1: wants to no he doesn't he doesn't have to for the income I spent A couple of years ago I went to North America and I spent six weeks in North America and I did a lot of research before I went. It's been 20 years before that that I was in North America. So one of the things I wanted to do was meet all the main players who run casting courses. I wanted to meet every person who's a good caster and good teacher of casting so I can see what I can learn from them.
0: Mm-hmm. One of
1: those people, of course, was uh, Lefty Cray. So I wrote... I got an email from uh, someone I knew who knew Lefty and I wrote to Lefty Crane and I said, now listen, old boy, it's been 20 years since I've been in North America and I'm coming to visit this winter and it it might be 20 years till I'm back again. So you're 83. I don't reckon you'll be around in 20 years. So I'd really like to catch up with you this winter and um, see what I can uh, learn about teaching casting. So he very graciously... Gave me a couple of days of his time and picked me up from the airport and we 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 talked casting instruction for two days. And Lefty said to me, he said, You know, Peter, we went down to a park near his house and there's a little pond in the park. He said, You know, Peter, if the council authorities knew how much money I've made from this little patch of water over the years, they'd put me in jail. (laughs) And I said, How old are you, old boy? He said, I'm 83. Now I got an email from him a little while ago and he sent me a lovely letter which is framed up on the wall there next to his hat, signed Mm -hmm. hat. But he's 87 I think now and he's still teaching casting. And Lefty and I get on really, really well because we've both got a passion for what we do. So how old? I don't know. I don't think I ever want to stop teaching people casting and fishing.
2: Do you love it as much as you did back then?
1: I love it more.
2: Do you get exhausted and burnt out ever, as you uh, hear older guides do?
1: No, I don't think so. I get tired, but not burnt out. I don't need to fish. You know, I've seen enough fishing to, you know, to know I don't need to cast to that fish.
2: If you won two million dollars tomorrow, would you still be doing this?
1: Yeah, for sure. No, nothing would change. I just wouldn't have to worry about them paying the next Mastercard bill.
2: You have got two incredible children i was I only able to meet maddie I, oh, I know
1: yeah
2: tell me about your sensational son i mean he's a cci at 11 years yeah. old that's incredible
1: yeah um interestingly for some reason maddie never really took to fishing or casting and i didn't try and teach her and nor and nor have i taught Lockie. i have not taught Lockie anything about fly casting or fly fishing but they watch, of course. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Mm-hmm. So Maddie's watched me teaching casting and fishing, the same as Lockie has, and she's not at all interested in fishing. Um, she's caught plenty of fish on a fly rod, but she's not interested in doing it. Whereas Lockie just wants to copy Dad. So um, so Lockie was casting really, really well, you know, when he was five or six years old, really. Right. And... It's interesting, I've, I've deliberately not tried to teach him anything. and Why? Well, a, a friend of mine years and years ago told me, when Lisa was pregnant actually, we were having dinner in Melbourne at a Future Fish Foundation ball. Lisa was pregnant with Lachlan and a friend from the fishing industry, Fred Jobson, said, Peter, whatever you do, don't take him fishing or her fishing. He said, I did that with my three children. I tried to force them into liking fishing. They hate it. And they hate it. So he said, whatever you do, don't take them fishing. So when Lockie was born and he grew up a bit, Dad, can I come fishing? No. A couple of weeks later, Dad, can I come fishing now? No, you can't when you're older. So another couple of weeks, Dad, can I have a cast? No. And this went on for three or four years.
2: Was it hard saying no?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, he'd sneak the rod out by the pond and start whipping the damn thing around. Good. And so he, he developed a real hunger for wanting to make a nice cast. And, he's, you know, they watch and they listen and they're really good copiers. So I learnt so much about teaching casting from my son, Lachlan, growing up. I think Lachlan's taught me more about casting than anyone else in the world, I reckon. I know that's a big statement, but in those years between, say, 6 when he sort of started and maybe 11 when he passed his uh, CCI in uh, Malaysia, the casting certification, he became the youngest ever person in the world to be an accredited casting instructor at 11. So between those years, in five years, I learnt more about teaching casting by watching this kid cast um, and asking him questions than I've learned from anyone else in the world, was including that because Joan Wolf and Lefty Cray, you know.
2: Would you think that was because he was a genuine blank slate? Absolutely. And be- that's all it is. And there's no, no ego at all?
1: That's all it is. Okay. Yeah. And he didn't have the strength that men and, or adults, men and women, have got. Right. So he has to cast differently because he doesn't have strength. And, of course, as you know, strength is one of the big... Killers, You know, if you're trying to help someone cast, if they're too strong about it, they lose the technique. Whereas this kid, you know, couldn't hold the rod tight. So when he holds the rod, he holds the rod like this, like I call it an O-ring grip when I teach casting. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not a grip you'd promote at all. But I can show you how to cast the whole fly line with my bamboo rod, just gripping the rod like this. So I tell people sometimes no grip is better than too much grip.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Coming up, Peter speaks with me about his guiding operation and the ups and downs to being in the fishing industry.
1: I'm sure you're completely understanding of this. I think you have to follow your passion in life, wherever that takes you. And just be really, really good at whatever you're passionate about. Be really good, be the best you can be and people will seek you out, and be, you'll be rewarded for it. Yeah, and I'm that, looking
2: at your board right now. Yeah. Dream, yeah. believe, yeah. dare, do. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's yeah. something and that that's I. that's not my
1: quote. I'm a great believer in giving credit where it's due, and that's a Walt Disney quote, as I understand it. But yeah, dream, believe, dare, do.
2: And is uh, that what you've done here? Yeah. Would you have changed anything?
1: The only mistake I've made here is that the casting pond should have been 10 times the size. (laughs) Yeah. So we could put 10 times more fish in it. Right. Um, But apart from that, um, the business plan I developed 21 years ago, I put in a drawer and didn't look at it for five years. Right. And when I I found it by accident, I looked at it, and it was almost exactly where I was at in five years. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years later, I did another business plan. Same thing happened 10 years later, I came across that business plan and I'm sort of exactly where I had intended to be. Unintentionally, I've ended up in the same space uh, I wanted to be.
2: Are you happy? Is this?
1: Oh, I'm a really happy person. Don't worry, I've got plenty of stresses in my life. I'm time poor, but I'm really happy. I'd like to be in a long-term loving relationship with a partner. Um, That's the only thing that's not quite right for me at the minute. But I think I've identified the right person recently, Mm -hmm. and we'll just see where that goes. In terms of the business model... Yeah, I think I'm exactly where I would like it to be in terms of the um, guiding service I provide over summer and the workshops that we can do here at this lodge with you know groups of 20. Um, and my international casting program's probably where I'd like it. I, I, I enjoy travelling internationally to teach. Mm-hmm. So this last winter, I was in China, actually, for the... F- I, th- I think I'm the... F- well, I know... I'm the first ever casting instructor to go into China. And as a result of that, I had some Chinese clients here in Tasmania that I, th- I think would be the first ever Chinese fly fishing people to come to Tasmania. Wow. Um, yeah, fly fishing is very, very young in China, like really young. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to be able to say I'm, I'm there on the ground floor. And, um, and I think I'll go back to China again this year as well and teach casting.
2: What about just a fish? Is there anywhere that you'd really uh, like yeah. to go?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, I'm a bit overfishing, like you said the other day. We had an opportunity to go <laughs> fishing today rather than podcast. Mm-hmm. And you said to me, you know, you've caught as many fish as you ever need to catch in your life. Trout. trout as
2: many you know. trout,
1: yeah. And I'm a bit the same. You know, I've 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 been in sail fishing and marlin tournaments, fly fishing. Oh yeah. I've caught. I have never caught a permit. There you go. I've caught bonefish until they come out my ears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've fished in northern Australia where you can catch 50 or 60 different species of fish on a fly in a week. I've done all that sort of saltwatery stuff. Um, uh, I've done trout fishing all over the world at, you know, at world championship level. I don't think I need to see, you know, like you, catch another trout on the backside points of the ground.
2: Was that part of your plan? I mean, a lot of times when you're young and you're drawing out a business plan and you're following your passion... The passion is, if it's not financial, it's often in this industry the fish that's driving yeah, you. Yeah, no, not so really. So no. when you made the plan, though, you would have been trying to do it so that you could continue to fish, no?
1: No, not really. No, I think that's just a natural sort of progression. No, I didn't. I didn't put any conscious thought into that. Um, one of the one of the sort of bucket list things. Uh, we are in Christmas Island uh, this winter. I took Lockie to Christmas Island. Oh, cool. And we went with a group of 16 friends and clients. And at the end of the trip, we were talking about where to go next. And I'm not a great one to go to the same place twice. I'm not interested. If I've been there and I worked out the fish and understand what's going on, I'd rather go somewhere else. So
2: you're a lodge hopper too?
1: Uh, I don't, I'm happy to camp in a tent or sleep in the back of a car, you know. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I move on you know, rather than dwell on things. So it's just driving to work. I never drive to work the same way twice. Why would I go the same way two days in a row when I could, you know, divert here and go and look somewhere else? You know, I I think if there's one thing I am, it's a great observer. You know, I'm an observer of everything. People, nature, fish, whatever. So I like like doing different things all the time. I never like doing things the same. And I'm always trying to improve too. Anyway... I think uh, one of the things we talked about the other day is Cuba. I'd love to take all these mates of mine and my family to Cuba.
2: What is it about Cuba that's so appealing?
1: Uh, the fact that there's no yanks there. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't, want, you don't want to go where these Americans, you know.
2: So are you and trying to... the
1: Americans aren't in there yet much, but they will be. Yeah. And Cuba's in a time warp, and it's got a wonderful history, rich history. And we'd go there, not for the fishing, but for the cultural... Experience. That's what I was
2: going to ask you. So
1: we talked about going to Cuba for two weeks and uh, one of my clients, Steve Cohen, is in charge of the social calendar for a week and I'm in charge of the fishery for a week. So yeah. are you going to do it? Yeah.
2: Do so you? You like, I'm Cuba. You sound like you're an adventurer. Yeah. So um, do you ever feel like you're faced with monotony here?
1: Uh, no, I don't. No, I'm never bored with what I do. Why not? I don't know. I'm a busy person. I'm always doing something. Different.
2: Do you stay busy on purpose because of that?
1: Well I think partly I've stayed busy because of my um, uh, relationship status you know it suited me to stay busy. What do you mean by that? Well I've you know interstate girlfriend for six years um, means I can just be busy here you know during the week kids are at school what else can I do? Just be busy
2: Can you sit still? Not very well. Why not do you think?
1: Um because there's always something to learn. There's always something to do. And, you know, my job here too, April, is they, they talk about being a fishing guide, being a mum and dad business. You know, it is a two-person business. Someone's got to do the emails. Someone's got to do the accounting. Someone's got to, you know, sort out the trailer to be welded. Someone's got to pick up the milk and the bread in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, someone's got to do the guiding. Well, I do all of that, and some, and mow the lawns, you know. So, I'm a bit, I have to be a busy person. And if I start employing people to mow the lawns and employ people, you know, I had a full time PA once upon a time. Um, uh, young Simone Hackett was my PA for three years when Dan was my head guy. Yeah, great people. And uh, Simone was my PA for three years. Yeah. And in a cu- those couple of years, we didn't make any money in this business.
2: So, just too much so money
1: out there? Yeah, you just can't employ people to do all this stuff. It's a mum and dad business. If you had in two my million case, dollars. There's only a dad. There's no mom and dad, you know.
2: If you had that same $2 million we spoke of earlier, would you hire people to do that stuff or would you still choose to do it?
1: No, I think that I'd uh, keep it small and intimate and do it myself.
2: Do you, and this, I'm I'm totally overstepping my boundaries here, but as a woman, I just have to ask, do you ever feel like maybe you keep running because you don't want any of your past, because it sounds like you've had a really interesting past, yeah. are you ever afraid that it's going to catch up? And that's why you keep moving. Oh, look,
1: I, 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 about uh, two years ago, I went to South Africa to teach casting. And uh, I taught casting to 400 odd people in South Africa over five weeks. And, um, and before I went, one of the organizers asked me to write something on an internet forum that they were using to promote my visit and my casting schools program. And, you know, to write something about where I came from and, you know, how I got to be where I am and, and you know, how is it that they should come to my casting courses, I talked about um, uh, a, a, a slogan that I really love. And in uh, in Victoria, outback Victoria, a very long time ago, there was a guy called uh, Mr Furphy. And Mr Furphy built water carts for carting water, um, And Furphy's slogan, which he welded, or no, he didn't weld, he cast, he cast on the end of every water cart this man ever made, he cast the slogan, Good, better, best, never let it rest, until your good is better, and your better best. And I really believe in that. I really believe in that. Good, better, best, never let it rest, until your good is better, and your better best. Living that can kill you.
2: does not that, that the same definition
1: does. of an overachiever? It is. I'm an overachiever. I'm a type A personality. A bloody engineer, for Christ's sake. And anyway, what I was getting at is one of the things I actually wrote to the South African uh, fly fishing, fly casting forum was that I think I'm put on this earth to teach casting. And I'm trying to do my job better and better and better every day for whatever reason. I suspect it's because I'm trying to prove something to a father that isn't even there. That's what I think. So, and look, you know, in some ways, um, I, I I don't doubt I'm I'm full on, I'm over the top about you know achieving. That's why I became an Australian champion in casting for 10, 10 years. Um, all that just doesn't happen because you you know you got lucky. You get lucky because you work really hard.
2: I don't believe in luck. No. And I also don't believe in unluck.
1: Yeah, you make your own breaks.
2: So for you, if, you have every, if every decade you have a revelation or you have some sort of awakening, mm. what do you think yours is going to be at 60?
1: Oh, look, I think uh, if there's anything I've learned about life for us all to take away... Um, it's you know it's, it's it and I'm continually reminded of this and very sadly I'm continually reminded too often, and especially lately too often, um, we're here for a good time, not a long time, April. And you've got to make every post a winner. You do have to be whatever what I call forever the student. You know it's our job to be interested in other people, interested in other things, trying to do things better for this planet for ourselves. Yeah. If I like you as a person, I think there's, you've got two attributes. One is you have what I call generosity of spirit. That to me is the most important attribute a person can have. You don't have to be generous with money or anything. You have to be generous of spirit, not mean spirited. And the other attribute that's really important, I think, and, and, and I'm more inclined to like you if you have this, is if you're also forever the student. Now, I've got a mature business after 21 years, I've weeded out the ungenerous-spirited people. Mm -hmm. You know, the ungenerous-spirited people don't come back. You know, there's no space for them next year. We're booked out, sort of stuff. Um, Or, uh, and I can think of some clients where maybe there was some uh, closed nature about them at the start and tight and closed nature and ungenerous spirit. Um, And over the years, I'm sort of pleased to say, um, you know, some of my... Uh, infectious enthusiasm for life generally my philosophy of life has actually rubbed off on them um you know some of those guys were just meat killers they wanted to just kill numbers of fish and now they're happy to let them go Mm -hmm. Uh, some of those guys want to you know get out the door at eight o'clock in the morning because i'm paying you for today you know where's my fish we've got to start fishing and now they're happy to learn how to make sourdough bread in my kitchen before we go fishing I don't, I don't sell fish. I sell life lessons and, and life experiences. So um, I'm pleased to say I can sometimes change the nature of people a little bit.
2: Yeah, you're a tough one for me. You're a very difficult one for me because I'll be honest, I think you're quite, you come across quite brash.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. But
2: when I look I don't at you, doubt I am. you're very quick, you're very witty, you're very on top of it, and you're always moving. But in your eyes, and again, I'm totally overstepping my boundary here. But you have, there's something about you that's really sad to me, and I can't figure it out. And okay. I don't know if it's insightful or philosophic mm. or if you're going through a phase. I don't know what it is, but I can't. You're so hard on the outside, yeah. but there's something really interesting yeah. in there I can't pinpoint on yeah, the inside. I think
1: that's about right. You know, I've been around, I guess. You know, I'm 53. Um, you know, I've had people that I love die, I've had relationships that I've loved not work. Um, you know, um, I've worked in a, you know, a niche business like fly fishing seasonal business, hard work, you know, it's hard. The pressures are constant. So yeah, I'm a person that, uh, that's lived under constant pressure from all sorts of directions all my life.
2: Do you think you apply most of the pressure?
1: Um, I probably don't help, you know, because I'm a high achiever I want to do a good job. I'm anal about success and succeeding. And that comes at a price.
0: During the break, Peter and I speak a little bit about books. To find my full reading list and reviews, as well as books written by guests of Anchored, be sure to go to www.aprilvoki.com and look for the reading list tab. I hope you enjoy them as much as I have.
2: We were just quickly chatting real briefly on the break there about... Books And I give you my mm. recommendation, which is The four-hour work week by Timothy Ferris, which I followed religiously. And you were about to tell me...
1: About the outliers. Let's hear it. Um, in more recent years, I, I read a fantastic book called The Outliers. And it will come as no surprise to you now, after this chat, that The Outliers is a book um, about exceptional achievement. People that are outliers, outside the bell curve people that are super successful at whatever they do, you know, over and above the sort of norm. So The Outliers, and and I I would uh, suggest everyone should read The Outliers, and everyone I've I've said um, should read it comes back to me and says, wow, what a great book.
2: I promise you I'll read it. Who's the author? The
1: author is a Canadian called Malcolm Gladwell, and the book... Um, is a study of all sorts of uh, people from all sorts of walks of lives that, um, uh, that are really successful. So it starts off... Oh, and, and he, he, he the, the, the basis of the book is that it just isn't luck that you're really successful. You need a whole string of coincidences and circumstances that combine and conspire together to create specialness.
2: Um, okay, talk to me a little bit about this device that you've made. You showed me right before we sat down, you've made yeah, this. Yeah, I haven't
1: made it, but a, a, partner, a, a, a fellow in North America, uh, Richard and I, are partners in a product called the Peter Hayes Stripper Clip. Mm-hmm. And as you saw earlier, the, um, the Stripper Clip is a gizmo that goes on a belt, waiting belt, and it's like having another hand to hold your line for you in coils beside your body. So as I'm stripping the line back, it doesn't matter how I do it, if I figure eight it, or if I roly-poly it, or if I just do a conventional strip, um, if I pull the line back, it automatically finds a slot in the plastic gadget and it grips it. There's uh, spring-loaded fingers, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, that grip the line. There's a tension adjustment so I can change the spring-loaded fingers such that you know it can accommodate thin running line or a fat double taper line. Um, And when I cast, the fingers are pointing in the direction of the line travel, and they release the coils that I've put in there, one at a time, or two or three or four, you know, in order, so that never tangles. So I could pull in 90 feet of fly line. It would all be coiled at my waist, rather than getting pulled back into the current, Mm -hmm. or be laying on sharp oysters or something in a saltwater environment. So frustrating. And... I could cast two or three coils if I want to make a short cast, or I could cast the whole fly line if I want to make a long cast.
2: That would be so great for using when fishing off the rocks.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you know, they, we've uh, we sold 800 of them around the world before we had a tooling issue that's nearly fixed, and um, we'll be able to sell more of them in the next month or so. But those 800 that were sold around the world, they're sold to people who are using rods from three weights, to 14 weights and when you think about it and if i ever wrote a book the first chapter in my book is going to be called line management because in fly fishing the problem for most people is managing the line because we have to pull it in all the time before we recast it we've got to do something with it and it always tangles or it gets sucked downstream in the current or it gets wrapped around a prickle bush so to be able to have something that just coils it up so easily instead of a conventional um fix which has been a stripping basket where people have big plastic baby bath tubs around their waist that you know get full of water and blown about by wind and so on and they're unwieldy the stripper clip you don't even know you've got it there you don't have to use it if you don't want to use it but it is like having a third hand and the fly line never ever tangles and if you're wading up a small stream with a two weight it makes sense to clip the line into this thing If you're wading flats with an 8-weight, it makes sense to clip the line into this thing. If you're using a spay rod, it makes sense to clip the line into this thing. If you're on the back of a game boat and you need to cast to a marlin in the wash, it makes sense to have the line organised in this strip clip where it's guaranteed not to muck up. If you're in a fishing competition in the World Championships and you've got 30 feet of line out and there's a fish at 60 you just want to cast without a tangle you don't want to be treading on the line you don't want it to tangle up Um, i think line management is the single common denominator for every fly fisherman on this planet and the stripper clip um, we set up a, a, a facebook page the peter hayes fly fishing stripper clip page where people when they catch a fish if it's a new species not on the facebook page already they take a photo of the fish with the stripper clip in the background sort of branding exercise and put them on the page. And I don't doubt we'll end up with stripper clip photos of two, three, four, five hundred different species because it's a common denominator. Line management is the problem for all of us.
2: As a, as a highly regarded casting instructor, what are three major problems that you see anglers and casters make?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Line management has got to be one major issue. You know, if uh, I could get all my clients better at line management, life wouldn't be so frustrating for them. They wouldn't muck up when an opportunity presents itself. Mm -hmm. Yep, line management has got to be one. I think uh, presentation's got to be two. I reckon um, getting the fly in front of the fish is really important. Not behind the fish or you know when the fish has moved and you know you, you the fly lands in the ring of the rise when the fish is ten feet away. So getting the fly in front of the fish is the key thing, but you have to qualify that with this. You know, there's an all there's an it depends on this one. you got to get the fly in front of the fish without the fish noticing you did it. So I see lots of people cast in front of a fish with the fly, but the fish knows you did it. So that's because the leader made too much noise when it hit the water or the fly line made too many ripples when it hit the water, or uh, the fish saw the rod or the line coming in the air before it landed in front of it, or uh, uh, maybe it drags, you know, it doesn't drift properly, Mm -hmm. the fish knows you did it. Now, I think if I could just fix that, get the fly in front of the fish, in a timely manner, of course, without the fish noticing that you did it, it'd be going over for a lot more fish.
2: What about a third thing? What about a common casting error that you see?
1: Um, I reckon, uh, how's this? Maybe if I could get clients to double their line speed, they would quadruple their catch rate. Hmm. There you go. That's a big statement. But double your line speed and quadruple your catch rate. How so? Well, how long have you got? Hit
2: Hmm. me. Hit me with it.
1: Okay. Um... Uh, one thing when we're using dry fly, if the line goes faster through the air, it leaves the water behind on the back cast better. So your flies float much, much better. Presentation. Yeah. And uh, you can see them better if you've got bad eyesight, etc. They behave more you know, as they're designed to behave. Um, that's one thing. Two, um, the, just the speed of, of casting to the fish. If I can double the... S- the line speed, it, you know, theoretically happens in half the time than it would have happened if I was going half the speed. Sometimes that matters, sometimes it doesn't, of course. I think that being able to double your line speed means that when I shoot line, which I do nearly every time I make a delivery cast, I shoot line, or you should, when I shoot line, it's going to shoot, I, don't, well, I wouldn't say it's going to shoot twice as far because it's going twice as fast, but perhaps maybe something in that order. So... Where a, uh, a beginner with very low line speed, the wrong loop shape, tries to shoot line into a fish, maybe he can shoot four or five feet or six feet. If I can shoot 20 feet, the fish doesn't see the line coming, you know. It just doesn't. The fly line's way back in the false cast, and the is the shot that shoots right into the fish. So the fish is less aware that a line's coming through the air at it. Also, if I can double my line speed, instead of using a 12-foot leader, maybe I can use a 24-foot leader. So, if you just want to catch more fish, you should double your leader length. That would, you know, easily work. I doubt that that would not work for anyone. If if you could double your leader length, you'll catch double the amount of fish, and you get you just get more presentations at the fish. There's less chance of it to fly dragging, etc. So, if I can have higher line speed, I can operate with a 24-foot leader and still turn it over most of it. Now, keep in mind, I'm not trying to get ever get the leader straight. If, if your leader lands dead straight, I suggest to you, your leader's too short. So, but the higher line speed means I can use a longer leader, longer, finer leader, and I catch more fish because the fly line's further away. The noise of the fly line landing is further away. The colour and the thickness of the fly line, the visuals of it are further away. Um, much, much better, I reckon increase your line speed catch more fish
2: what do you think is the best casting book ever written in your opinion I mean there's lots of great ones but what's <sighs> your
1: favourite oh look I've got an office full of them um that's a good question I don't go for any of them to be quite honest you know I find I find Joan Wolf too technical you know the information's correct but it's just a bit too sort of technical for me um no, I'm not a I'm not a great fan of books, um, you know. In spay casting, one you'd be familiar with is Simon Gorsworth's book. Yeah, yeah, he's and, great. Yeah, he was here here last week, and a books one thing, but they're words and they're pictures and they're static pictures of that, and I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. I, I'm I'm I'd rather just watch someone cast and ask a question and then try and do it. I think. If you try and learn from a book, you'll be, you know, a long time doing it. One example, my casting course notes, years ago, I used to send notes via email in advance of my casting classes. So four days before you were booked into a casting course with me, you'd get notes sent to you automatically by my computer system. And one of the things, sort of chapter one of the notes, is grip. How do you grip the rod? And grip's one of those things that's a style thing. It's not a substance issue, you know. You can grip the rod any way you want. Uh, It's not really important. But the most common grip is a thumb-on-top grip. And all, you know, books show you the thumb-on-top grip. And I personally don't like it for lots and lots of reasons. I don't cast like that. I'd never, ever really advocate anyone cast like that.
2: Do you cast with the web of your hand on top?
1: Yeah, I cast with my knuckle on top, my index finger knuckle on top. And if you ever read any of Mel Krieger... and I. Is one of the few books that discusses this that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He calls it a V grip. And then rotating it further around, he calls it a palm out grip. But this is a grip... You can imagine if you got a key and took took your house key off the key ring and you put your house key in the lock, you'd be holding your key with your thumb and your index finger and you'd put the key in vertically into the into the lock, you know. So it's, it's that sort of grip. So... What I say to people is, grip the rod with your thumb on top and your index finger in front of your thumb, and then rotate it. Rotate your hand around, you know, forty-five degrees. So that's pretty plain English. You know, I can't write it any clearer than that. Thumb on top, index finger out the front, rotate it around forty-five degrees. So I get to a casting class in Sydney. Some guy comes along, lawyer from uh, lawyer from Sydney. And he starts casting with his hand, forty-five degrees, the opposite rotation. So I should have actually said, when you're looking down at your hand, rotate your hand anti-clockwise forty-five degrees. Because I didn't give a direction of rotation, this guy is casting like this. Mm, ooh. Now you've got to be really careful about the written word, you know.
2: Right, right. Have you? Why don't you write a book then?
1: Um, because I'm time poor, I'm so busy guiding and teaching casting and selling products and doing accommodation and meals. Um, I haven't got time for a book.
2: I'll bet you that your sixty-year-old uh, or your sixty-year benchmark is yep. going to be a book. I'll bet you on yep, it right maybe.
1: now. maybe you might be right. Um, yeah. Well, my casting course notes are really, really half a book already, and all the articles I've written are the other half, probably. Um, yeah. So. Uh, you know, stuff in books, ten o'clock, two o'clock as an as an arc for fly casting, you know, it depends, you know. <laughs> yeah,
2: you love that, huh? Yeah,
1: it does, it just depends. Asterisks
2: um, on everything. So
1: if I want to talk about the casting arc in a fly casting book, you know, I could write you a hundred pages and you won't get bored with it, you think, Oh wow, yeah, right. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I didn't think about this and so on. It all depends. Yeah. Well there's often no one answer. Yep. Mm.
2: If you could give aspiring guides a word of advice for all those uh, intelligent men and women who are living careers that they hate but that are um, highly regarded as professional careers like engineers and uh, doctors, dentists, etc. What would you say to them?
1: Why would you want to be an aspiring guide?
2: Well, because Gosh. they listen to someone like you who loves their life.
1: Uh, it's a hard road, you know. Um, look I think I really do think we should do what we are best at and where our passion is and I think if everyone followed their heart and their passion on this planet the world would be a kinder place to live in I reckon but understand this is a really hard road Uh, I think in Tasmania as an example there might be 15 or so professional fly fishing guides as members of the guiding association in Tasmania. And there would only be three of those that could say that their entire income comes from guiding. Uh, the other dozen, so it looks good in a brochure when you see see fifteen people advertise, mm-hmm. but the other dozen are retired, you know, living on their superannuation funds or their partners' work and support them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So of those uh, three, maybe four um, operators that derive their entire income from guiding, um, you know, can't imagine any of those guys paying private school fees for their kids etc so you've got to understand that before you give up a dental career to become a f- fly fishing guide just because the passion and the romance of it um you, you know there's some stark reality you need to really consider so
2: where do you draw the I've line i've been between? lucky
1: april lucky.
2: oh yeah
1: that's so i've been lucky in that i had a uh, competition casting reputation to start with i was lucky that i started my guiding business in the same year that a river runs through came on tv and a, a famous uh, australian uh, documentary series called um, a river somewhere i've
2: heard about that yeah
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, and 1994 was a boom year for fly fishing in australia but it hasn't been like that since so so for the for the new young guides this year coming online there's none of that Um, so I was lucky I got in early I got in at a good time in Tasmania I had a good reputation already and I've been able to continue to grow that reputation through the casting school program internationally Mm -hmm. Um, it's uh you know I'm in a unique position don't think I don't think you can just sort of copy what Peter does next week
2: So, do you think there is a dividing line between those four words up there—dream, believe, dare, do? Is there a dividing line between believe and dare?
1: No, I just suspect something like uh, something like fly fishing guiding might actually be like becoming an artist or a musician. And you know, I'm just guessing. I don't know anything about the music industry or the artist you know industry, but there must be ten thousand great guitar players or people who think they're great guitar players that would love to follow their passion of playing guitars and making CDs and playing in bands around the world on stages in New York and Paris and just doesn't happen for them. Mm -hmm. And I suspect the same thing can happen if you're not careful. The same thing could happen if you went into the fly fishing guiding business.
2: So I guess my last, really one of my last questions for you is when you're gone and you've passed on, what do you want to be remembered as?
1: Ah, That's a good question hmm um oh look i'd like to hope that i've made a difference to a lot of people's lives by um, introducing them to fly fishing and spending time in nature and uh and looking after the environment um i'd love to be known for uh teaching casting properly um, one of the guys I most admired very early on when I started guiding, I spent some time, I was lucky, very lucky again to spend some time with a guy called Tom White. And Tom White was an iconic North American fly casting instructor. He's a very, very good caster. He was um, um, he was a great entertainer as well. And when Tom White died a few years ago, someone wrote a poem about him and the poem was called, the teacher's teacher. And I'd love to be known as one of the teacher's teachers. That's why I am so generous with my knowledge and generous of spirit. Um, I like teaching people to teach others. And and when I met Lefty Cray, one of the great things I remember about Lefty, he said, you know, Peter, I really love that attitude. He said, it's really important when you uh, show someone fly casting, he said, make sure you don't display your knowledge make sure you teach it and I agree completely with Lefty Cray on that too many people April, like to display their knowledge show off it's important to be able to share and teach so that's what I'd like to be known for
2: yeah I think you're doing it really well is there anything that you would like to either add or ask me
1: no, you've done a good job your uh, you're a female version of me, I reckon.
2: <laughs> I don't know if that should be scary or not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can turn that into something.
0: That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Please take a quick moment to leave a review on iTunes.